Hello from San Francisco. You are tuned to the Hate Street Beat, and we're documenting the psychedelic renaissance while celebrating the past, present, and future of the Hate Ashbury. Today we'll be hearing from a genuine hero of the hate, Linda Kelly. Linda is an author, journalist, and editor-in-chief of the Hate Street Voice with a tagline of hyper-local with a global perspective, which nicely captures the strange duality of the hate since it's both a small neighborhood and the epicenter of global psychedelic freedom. And before we hear from Linda, it's time for our Psychedelic Freedom Report, where we explore the rapidly evolving scientific and legal landscape impacting our access to psychedelic medicines. Jurisdictional fragmentation between municipal, state, provincial, and federal layers of government has created uneven and unequal levels of access. Each psychedelic substance is working its way through different degrees of decriminalization, legalization, and regulation at very different rates of speed. And knowing the degrees of difference between these terms of art is essential to having a clear view and understanding of our progress. It's important to remember that even if something is decriminalized, it may still be illegal. Decriminalization is the removal of criminal sanctions which is an evolutionary leap, but you may find that you can still be fined for its possession or use. Decriminalization can be seen as a stepping stone or intermediary point between something being illegal and legal. A rule isn't a rule without an exception, and that's so true for decriminalization. Now, the beauty of legalization is that it makes psychedelic substances completely acceptable in the eyes of the law and the possession or use of those medicines would not be subject to any penalties. So please do take the time to better understand the degrees of difference between these important terms of art. And in doing so, we're doing our part to better understand how much progress is being made and how much further we need to go so that everyone in all jurisdictions will have the freedom to access this important class of medicines and the deep healing they provide. In the big picture, decriminalization, legalization, regulation, and taxation are the royal road to legitimization. And remember, we're all on the same road to a better future together. My guest today is Linda Kelly, and not only is she the editor-in-chief of The Hate Street Voice, but she also wrote the book, Deadheads, Stories from Fellow Artists, friends, and followers of the Grateful Dead. And one of my favorite passages in this book is where Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, defines what it means to be a deadhead. And Joseph Campbell is not just like a mere mythologist. He literally wrote the book that inspired George Lucas on the hero's journey and character construction for what became Star Wars. So this is an individual who sees very deeply into the archetypes at play in minds through time. And he had a chance to see the Grateful Dead perform in Oakland in 1986, where he witnessed what he refers to as, quote, one incredible Dionysian ritual, a dance revelation and music and magic for the future. Now let's take a deeper look into the word Dionysian. It calls back to Greek mythology relating to Dionysus, but the other definition of Dionysian is relating to the sensual, spontaneous, 
and emotional aspects of human nature. And given the improvisational nature of the Grateful Dead's work and art, I think that analysis is really just spot on. And without further ado, we welcome Linda Kelly to the show. I'm Linda from Orinda. <laughs> just turned 20 for the third time. I was born in 62. I grew up in the East Bay uh, in a very rural town called Orinda. But in 1982, I moved to the corner of Haight and Ashbury. I lived at 612 Ashbury at the corner of Haight above Wauzi Records. And then it became The Gap. And now it's uh, our Aruka, R-V-C-A. But I lived uh, yeah, at 612 corner when I went to SF State and studied at Ben Fong Torres's uh, journalism class and became a journalism major back in the day. So, and then I said, screw all this hippie crap and moved to New York for about eight years, Manhattan, and got my journalism chops and my <laughs> journalism slash bartending chops, uh, waitressing chops up and had an amazing uh, eight year excursion to NYC. And now I'm back uh, and in the middle of all the hippie crap again. And I dig it a lot much more uh, this time around. <laughs> what was the neighborhood like in 1982? Quite frankly, I remember it being just fine. I mean, I would go to the I-beam, the uh, night breaks was going on, um, night break. And I was so busy with school and in my own little world. To me, it seemed pretty harmless. I didn't, I never felt unsafe. I remember the parking even back then was still difficult. But overall, I felt like the neighborhood was was pretty cool. Again, I was a student, so I wasn't spending a lot of time out and about. But when I did go down Hate Street, you know, I, I found it to be hospitable. Uh, how has the neighborhood changed in your view? Uh, since then to now? Yeah. There's there's still a magic here in the hate. I interviewed Bob Weir in my, uh, I think it was edition number eight, who's a dear friend of mine from the Grateful Dead. And I asked him what he wanted to say to the street kids. And he said, well, you found your home. Now keep it clean and make it pretty. We've got a beautiful space here. We've got a very magical place that a lot of amazing things happened and were born from this amazing, you know, six block little strange little vortex on the planet that the whole world knows about the Haight-Ashbury pretty much. And I think we either take care of it or we don't. I um, I think the neighborhood has changed and that maybe there's not as much respect for it as there was or should be. I'll, I'll say it. I'll leave it at that. And you're now the editor-in-chief of the Hate Street Voice. And could you just give us a little bit of history about uh, the Hate Street Voice? The Hate Street Voice is my is my love of my life. And um it I am I am the hate I am the um I am the woman behind the curtain. I do it all. I do, I mean, I I've brought on a few writers and columnists now, but um I do the graphics. I do the, you know, I do the, I, I, I sell all the advertising. I do the Patreon page. Anybody out there that wants to <laughs> become a subscriber, do so at Patreon, Hate Street Voice. But it came to me because I was 10 years at NBC. I was the editor-in-chief at, at one of their channels. A really amazing job. Great money. Uh, and before that, I was at Lucasfilm for seven years, Um and again, I'm a Bay Area native, so I was very grateful and honored to be in Media Gulch down by the Port of San Francisco and then to be up at Lucasfilm. I've had some really cool gigs after my time in New York um, in the editorial realm. I also wrote a book on the Grateful Dead. But the magazine got born because there's a woman at NBC that I worked with after we all got laid off after 10 years um, 
who suggested me um, from BizDev from a man named Jan Hardesty. He approached her saying, would you be interested in uh, being a uh, hyperlocal journalist for the Mission District? Because she lived in the Mission and he found her through NBC. And she suggested myself because I lived in the hate and he approached me and it was like this beautiful um, he had a he has a uh, sister brother magazine called the Castro Valley News. Shout out to the Castro Valley News, Roberto Souza, who is the editor in chief there. Which is they're hyper local magazines that take care of the community that we happen to live in, uh, hyper local with a global perspective. So this magazine kind of landed in my lap, um, and I'm so grateful because it's connected me even great more greatly with the community. Uh, it's been a fantastic journey and I'm proud of it and people dig it and I'm grateful that it landed in my lap. One of the great things about the, the Hate Street Voice and also a, a number of businesses on Hate Street is just the way that they showcase local artists. And I think you absolutely know, uh, that's one of the things that the hate as a neighborhood has really done. You know, I think the intersection of hate Ashbury is really also the intersection of creativity and psychedelics and <laughs> when the two and the two come together um you mentioned that you had written a book about the grateful dead i'd be curious to get your thoughts on what do you think is one of the largest misperceptions about the grateful dead well you know i think that every oh god the grateful dead and all the dumb the deadheads in fact the name of my book is called deadheads but i you know i thought that i i was the same when i was young uh thought the grateful dead oh the hippie crap and i didn't like the way they sounded and it's just one of those you know, hippie things, but I think that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions, misperceptions of the dead. They were just a bunch of young kids that loved to play music and were really honest and, and really talented and found a groove and, and expressed themselves and people started digging it. And they were being real and they were, you know, being honest and they were being expressing, like I said, their creative selves, just you know, fumbling around, you know, maybe not the most art, you know, expert musicians at the beginning and willing to make mistakes um and courageous i think that 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 is one of the things that's not maybe known about them is that it took a lot of guts for them to do what they did they just went out there unabashedly and just started you know jamming and finding finding their feet and people followed followed along um and i don't mean to compare myself to the grateful dead but uh the same with this magazine. I just well, I'll just go out and start talking to people and see what's up, and you know, ask other people what they're doing because I certainly don't know what I'm doing, and maybe it'll all sort of fall into place. And that's sort of what's been happening with the magazine is, you know, people just want to feel connected, and I think that was a big thing about the Grateful Dead too is it was a, a great place to just connect and be yourself. Just how how difficult improvisational creativity is. I mean, it's one thing to sit down and play a song. From the beginning to the end as it's written it's, but yet it's something altogether different to be able to make it up as you go along oh 100 percent. yeah i mean yeah i mean i played the blue i have a piano, upright piano in my bedroom actually sitting i'm just staring at it right now um but yeah improv and 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 and, and like i said being willing to make mistakes and fall on your face it's a beautiful thing it, and it takes courage it takes guts and and uh to have it all packaged and perfect is one thing like you said and and to and sort of i mean Thelonious Monk is one of my favorite piano players of all time and 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 what sounds like mistakes are these beautiful sort of you know miniature train wrecks that are beautiful <laughs> you know a mistake is a state of mind <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely 
you you had uh, mentioned that you had done some uh, uh, write uh, work, uh, writing and editing at Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. uh, what what was that experience like? Again, that was another. I, I'm I, I swear I'm blessed to somehow. I mean, I feel so grateful for the the amazing things that have landed in my lap out of nowhere. It's sort of like forced gump. Like, how the heck did I get here? Um, so I'm very grateful for these things. But um, Lucasfilm was literally on Craigslist. They didn't say Lucasfilm, but this was back in, gosh, it was just after 9-11. So it was after uh, the whole crash, you know, of um, the tech thing. So it was about 2000 and, well, whatever, 2002, I guess. I was working at Skywalker Ranch and um, amazing, <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, I was looking at, you know, the the Lucas Valley Road is not named after Lucas, George Lucas, by the way, people. Um, but, you know, here I am at the Skywalker Ranch transcribing interviews with all of the cast and crew of the original Star Wars for a little side project that George was working on about uh, how the original Star Wars was made and who was on it. And I literally was getting paid to listen to stories eight hours a day uh, for a little over six years. And it was wonderful. It's incredible. It sounds like your life is really a, uh, you know, kind of showcases just how special this, the Bay Area is and the opportunities that are present here for uh, creative people. I do believe that. I mean, I like I said, I did go to New York and a lot of magic happened out there too, but I do believe that there's a, there's something in the water out here in the Bay Area that, uh, like the Grateful Deadline, uh, you know, uh, New York uh, has the ways and means, but just won't let you be. California lets you be. You can either take that space and, and do do good with it, or you can, you know, you can flounder it. And um, I think that is a big Bay Area slash California thing, the space. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the great things about uh, San Francisco is we get more degrees of freedom to be ourselves here than you get in a lot of any other places in in the world, frankly. Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, I think in my experience, my eight years in New York, I, it gives you the space, but uh, <laughs> but it's so minuscule, it's so fast, and everybody's so busy doing that too. And that that's one of the things you loved about New York. Um, you know, is it's fast, and you got to know what the heck you're doing, and if you don't, you're going to hit the curb. Um, but John Perry Barlow, I'll tell you really quickly, was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead and one of the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a dear friend of mine, God rest his soul. And he always said, uh, between New York, it's in my book, uh, between New York and San Francisco, he loves both so much. He said, but if I had to choose between the two, I would choose New York because I'd much rather have somebody say, fuck you and me and have a nice day than the other way around. Out in California, they say, have a nice day, but you're not quite sure what they're thinking. There's a lot more room to it. Like, whatever, dude, there's a lot more, maybe too much space sometimes if you get my drift, you know. So you kind of have to find your own, you kind of have to find your own structure out here. I think that's an important thing to to say. If we're speaking to, who is our audience now? Is it is it students? And pardon my cursing. I just tend to go into that once in a while. <laughs> students in general and people who are interested in the neighborhood. You know, I'd really like people to uh, get a, a greater, I think one of the best ways that people can learn about the unique aspects of the Haight-Ashbury is just, you know, through the voices of the people who live here and have the lived experience of, of being here. You know, it's something that's all together. I think that, you know, uh, what happened in the late 60s is is really kind of glamorized and idolized. And that that's just kind of like the the glossy surface. But I think, you know, when you get underneath it, you know, there's, there it, it really is an exceptionally rare neighborhood. And, uh, uh, you know, there's the the psychedelic aesthetic is everywhere present from the architecture 
to the color palettes, to the art history, the, the history of psychedelic art and the artists who have called the Haight-Ashbury home. And so I'm just trying to, you know, shine out. Kingly Mouse, absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. And I was laughing because I live on page in Masonic and even the even the preschool has, you know, psychedelic mushrooms painted on the side of the school. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just so fantastic. Uh, which leads me into working with Dr. David E. Smith. We're, we're working on the Haight-Ashbury Psychedelic Center. Uh, I love Dr. Dave. He's the founder of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic in 1966, I believe. Um, and he lives in the neighborhood as well. And he adores the Haight-Ashbury. He could certainly live anywhere else in the world in, 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 at his age. But he chooses to live in the Haight-Ashbury because he loves it here. And um, he really does think that there's a, a specialness to this neighborhood. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the Haight-Ashbury Psychedelic Center is sort of his, you know, sort of... Um, I guess I would I guess legacy. I mean, he would love to leave a space, a safe space, a physical space where it will be an educational center. It will be a space where people can meet. It will be a space where people can talk about psychedelics. At, at some point, we, they have been decrimmed here in San Francisco. But when it is, you know, OK for doctors to treat people you know, a space, a safe space for that to happen as well in the very near future. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of this. And he's, he's touted me the creative director of the Haight-Ashbury Psychedelic Center. And, you know, that's kind of figuring out what it is, but I'm collecting testimonials from people about how psychedelics have, you know, enhanced or helped them in their lives um, recreationally or, you know, psychologically or on all sorts of different levels. So, um, I do think that the the psychedelic thread, the mycelium, as it were, is definitely woven into the fabric of this neighborhood. Does that mean that I do psychedelics currently? Does it mean I'm against them? N neither. You know, I mean, I actually am entertaining the idea of doing like a, a story about, um, you know, maybe a few psychedelic induced uh, therapy sessions, you know, two or three and, and writing about my experience of that. Um, that's farther out down the line in 2023, but um, that's a very much possibility as opposed to just a recreational, oh my God, I took mushrooms and I went into the park and I tripped out. It, it would be more of a study of actually how it affected my brain, how it affected my thought process in a more scientific way, which to me sounds really fascinating. Psychedelics are really profound catalysts in a lot of people's lives, you know, not only just for self-understanding, but also for the impact it has on their creativity as yep. well. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see as psychedelics go through this renaissance that they're going through again now here. And now, now that research is again allowed, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I have to believe that psychedelic psychotherapy is going to play a huge role and beneficial role for people in the future. And it'll be interesting to see the way that this neighborhood and the city and Bay Area at large kind of adapt to facilitate that. I interviewed a, a couple of people, Daniel Negrin, who is the executive director of the Psychedelic Center, mm -hmm. uh, and also, um, um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget his name right now, uh, but he is a psychotherapist up at UCSF, is my main point of this sentence, is they are actually right there up the hill at UCSF doing psychedelic-induced psychotherapy, and um, it's, it's, it's being it's actually happening and it's for real. And these are doctors. And, and so this time around, as Dr. Dave likes to say, they're doing it, they're doing it the right way instead of just handing it out to a bunch of everybody and saying, Hey, go trip out. And this is going to help you, which did for a lot of people, I'm sure, but in a, in a not controlled way, but in a, in a way that's going to let the, the, the 
powers that be go, okay, this actually is helping to heal people. You know, when psychedelics were made a schedule one drug, uh, as in they have no uh, psychotherapeutic or medical benefit, I think where things really went wrong there was how that they also outlawed doing research because psychedelics had a history of uh, being very beneficial for a lot of treatment resistant people. And I think that, you know, we, we lost 50 years <laughs> with some of our best, oh, uh, not, yeah. not, you know, not, not able to use. So it, it is nice to see that, uh, you know, the regulatory frameworks are coming in for uh, licensing for psychotherapists, as well as the uh, facilities where these sorts of th uh, treatments can take place. Uh, exactly. Canada's a little Dr. bit farther Penn. ahead. Oh, I just, his name is Do uh, Dr. Andrew Penn, P-E-N-N, -N, Andrew Penn. I just want to do a shout out for him up at UCSF. Wonderful, wonderful doctor up there that, that is completely um, supportive and very cautious. And I asked him as a journalist what I could do to help facilitate, you know, the the decriminalization and legalization of psychedelics. And he says, don't blanket statement things. Make sure that it's, you know, let's do this cautiously and carefully and, and slowly get there rather than just sort of rush into it, which I think is really good, a good point. And uh, just to kind of conclude, what's your hope for the future of the neighborhood? I do hope that people really learn to respect it and treat it with 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 kindness and 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 not sort of abuse it with oh yeah this is the place to party and yes of course it's a place to really be yourself but um I know that there's been some some difficulties between the residents and some of the some of the street people you know um being too loud or you know you know being too much too late and it's okay to express yourself and all of that but I think that we all need to really we all have to live together we all need to respect each other we all need to really be ourselves but be kind I mean that's the bottom line on the planet after COVID and the whole thing and then all these years later is respect each other be nice to each other maybe you know your dog is scaring the person because they're scared of dogs maybe the dogs well behaved or maybe they're maybe you're having a beer on the street and oh my god that freaks somebody out but just be, be aware, you know, be aware, be kind, respect each other, respect the music, respect the space, respect the history. And a beautiful thing that I'm saying is there are the young, there's like, cause uh, I, I'm at 1506 Haight Street once in a while, which is the uh, San Francisco Heritage's little space. Uh, Stanley Mouse had an exhibit there for two months. And I was in there with my dead book and my magazine um, last year. And it's an incredible space to observe and people come in and like, what's going on in here? And I kiddingly say, well, what's going on out there? And it's just sort of a place to, to show up and, and check in with each other. And a lot of young people, I'm talking like 17, 18 year old men and women coming in and, and, and expressing um, joy over my print magazine that, that, oh, wow, the print magazine and this, find the wonder, be open to the simple beauty of this place we live and let alone like you said Buena Vista Park and I mean the surroundings I'm looking out my back window at at the panhandle out my bedroom window and and you know it's it's a magical beautiful place and let's like Bob Weir said let's we found our home now let's keep it clean and make it pretty and I don't mean clean like you you know you're in you know you're you never do drugs or never drink but but make it respect it again that's my soapbox there. <laughs> Linda Kelly, Editor-in-Chief of the Hate Street Voice, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. Um, and as you will just say, um, if you want to help support hyper-local journalism with a global perspective, 
Um, I do have a Patreon page and it's for, you know, three bucks a month. It's a huge help to keep this community journalism alive and, and, uh, and, and people are digging it and I, and I dig the people. So let's all work together and keep the dream alive. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Linda. It's greatly appreciated. Jazz lost one of its legends and masters of the game yesterday in the passing of Wayne Shorter. I had a chance to interview Wayne for the Monterey Jazz Festival's Digital Music Education Project, and I asked him what advice he would have for artists. If you met Wayne Shorter, you know he's, he's a trip. <laughs> but Wayne said, he said that it's important for artists to read, to explore the world, and to better understand life so that they can pour all of that into their instrument and into their art and into their craft. He said that he had a chance to ask Charlie Parker what he was thinking about when he was playing. Charlie Parker responded, I'm playing mountains, I'm playing hills, I'm playing streams, I'm playing oceans. <laughs> and that kind of gives you an insight into the level that these musicians create at. You know, it's like the idea of Wayne Shorter and Charlie Parker having a conversation together. It's pretty much like, you know, Mozart and Beethoven walk into a bar. <laughs> Two giants of the game. Terrence Blanchard is another exceptional jazz musician, trumpeter from New Orleans. His advice for artists was exceptional. And when I interviewed Terrence Blanchard for the Digital Music Education Project about his advice for artists, this is what he said. I think the biggest tip I can give any young musician is that learning how to play your instrument technically is the easiest part of it. The hardest part of it has to do with trying to figure out who you are, trying to find your sound and your style. So you have to get through the technical part first. So just go ahead and practice and do that because on the other side of that is the true journey, is the true search, is the true part of being an artist. Truer words have never been spoken. We're going to close out this episode of the Hate Street Beat with a song. This one is called Egos In, Egos Out. And that's spelled E-G-O-S. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. <laughs>